ahead. You've got to be thinking about ways to share the gospel and to connect with people that need to hear the gospel. Um, missions, it doesn't have to be, the mission work of our church in this community, which is us going out and sharing the gospel, doesn't have to be some astounding thing. It literally can be while you're at a barbecue or a basketball game with your kids or grandkids. Um, it can be at the grocery store or shopping with your neighbor um, or caring for your neighbor, but it's just an ordinary thing that can turn into a gospel-intentional moment. And uh, so to do that, I want to challenge you that you need to be a person of integrity. person of integrity. And a person of integrity stands a greater chance of influencing change in a friend's life than one who has none. Um, if you want to be an influence for somebody, it helps to have integrity. Now, I'm going to just tell you, give you a little hint at the end here. I'm going to say all these important things that we need to be as Christians going to challenge us as the body of Christ and as, as members that love God to be all these things we're going to talk about, uh, five areas that you need to develop to be a person of better influence. Uh, then at the end, I'm going to undo them all, okay? So, so don't panic if you're not one of these yet. Um, don't panic. But I want you to hear the things that would help you have a testimony. The first one is just simply uh, in, integrity itself, and that looks like this. In James 5 and verse, verse 12, the author James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. As a matter of fact, he says, above all my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what was happening is, the, James is a writer to the, he's the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem ever, a huge church filled with a lot of devout Jews and a lot of Greeks and Romans and all kinds of mixes there, and uh, James is writing to him because the Jewish people have gotten in a bad habit of swearing by things, and uh, you probably as kids, you know, when, you're, when your friend would tell you something and you'd say, well, I don't believe you, you'd say, well, I swear by my grandmother's grave, you know, kind of thing, um, you know, even if your grandmother wasn't dead, you'd swear by her grave, and uh, just kind of the way we had to have something, but that came from a tradition in the Jewish history um, where the Jews would try to make vows with each other. And, and they would make a promise. I promise to buy this piece of land from you and give you this much money every month. Well, I need to know why, how you're going to keep that promise. And a Jewish person would shake your hand and say, well, I swear by the gate of the temple. Well, the temple is where God dwells, you know? So when somebody would say something like that, you know, the other guy would go, oh, yeah, if you're going to swear by the gates of the temple, that's awesome, you know? And uh, so they, they, would, they would make a... a vow like that. Well, later on, this guy would break his vow to make the payments, and he would stop making payments, and he'd say, man, you swore by the gates of the temple. He'd go, yeah, but I didn't swear by the most important, you know, there's a bunch of gates to the temple. I wasn't thinking of that one. I was just thinking of these lesser gates, so it doesn't really matter. And then they'd say, well, I swear by the walls of the temple, you know, because those were important. And then somebody would say, well, I swear by the, the inner part of the temple. And they just kept moving. They had to make the, the thing greater and greater. So eventually they'd say, well, I swear by the heavens, you know, because that's where God dwells. But when, when they would break their promise on that, they'd say, not that heaven, just the one right above us. You know, and so, I mean, they were just all crafty, trying to figure out ways to, really trying to figure out ways to not keep their promise. And James is like, stop doing that. You shouldn't, shouldn't have all these little layers and levels of commitment to your promises. When you give your word, you give your word. He says, you know, as, as Christian men and women, when we say, I'm going to pay this, or I'm going to do this, let your yes mean yes, 
and your no mean no. Exactly what it means. There's a great example of that. I'm not going to take time to read it all to you, but in Daniel chapter 6, if you just, in your notes, Daniel 6 lists several characteristics of a true person of integrity. Because Daniel was a, a little boy, a teenager, captured. Uh, the Israelites were captured and taken into captivity by Babylon. So he was raised in a non-God environment. He was raised in an environment that was completely secular and void of his Jewish heritage, although he had a great upbringing, so he brought a lot of that in, in with him. And uh, over the years, from a little boy to a grown uh, man to an older man, he distinguished himself immensely in the courtrooms and the, the hierarchy of Babylon, till eventually he is literally, the king finds him to be one of the greatest guys he's ever met. And he says, I'm going to appoint three people to rule my country Daniel, you're going to be one of them, and y'all are going to have 120 people under you to rule under you. And Daniel, you're going to... And the king started thinking, you know, I just need one guy that I go to. I want that to be Daniel. All the other guys get jealous, and so that's when they decide to throw him in the lion and make a law that he will disobey and throw him in the lion's den. Well, in that whole chapter, there's some beautiful marks of integrity that occur there. I preached on it several years ago because it's part of the relationship series. We talk about having healthy relationships. You have to have some integrity with each other to, to do that. But I want you to just hear this one uh, concept that's in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, and in verse 6, it says, They found no cause for accusation against him in his business or his personal life. Um, in other words, they, they looked into everything and they could find no cause for accusation. And then when they finally did figure out a way to accuse him based on his religion, because he prayed to God every day based on his faith, so they would... They said, well, we're going to make it where you can't do that, and then when you break that, the king will have to throw you in the lion's den. But the king, when he threw him in the lion's den, before and after, here's the phrase he says about Daniel. Daniel, may the God whom you constantly serve, may the God whom you constantly serve take care, take care of you, uh, rescue you. And, and it's in two different verses, 16 and verse 20, which means here's how the king identified Daniel. You're a guy who constantly serves your God. Like you're never not doing that. As long as I've known you since you were 12 years old and captured by us, you're constantly serving your God. Isn't that awesome? That's the mark of integrity, by the way. One of the greatest marks of integrity um, is a person that's just consistent with God. It means you're regularly reading your scriptures. You're regularly praying. You're regularly seeking after more wisdom and more fellowship and more relationship with God. That's what integrity looks like. I want to challenge you that if you want to be a better influence to people in your uh, circles, if you want to bring the gospel in and see people's lives change, which is our heart's desire for 2015 is for us to actually reach some people with the gospel, then you literally have to have some integrity there. And uh, you're going to need to be consistent with your walk with God. It'll help. The second thing I want to say to you today is you should have compassion. You should have compassion. One of the areas that we have to develop to be a better influence is uh, compassion. And the prodigal father is a great example of this. You know, there's a story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son um, who, who wants his inheritance from his dad early, and then he takes his inheritance away to a foreign land, and he squanders it away. He throws away all his dad's money, just burns right through it, and uh, wild parties and crazy stuff. And, he, and then, then there's a famine in the land, so he's starving to death. And, uh, and he ends up working on a pig farm. He's a Jewish guy. Working on a pig farm. You're not even supposed to be around pigs. You're not supposed to eat it or be around them. Here's a Jewish guy working on a pig farm, slopping pigs. And the, he says the pea pods that he's given to the pigs 
good to him. He wants to eat those. That's how hungry he gets. And then it, then it occurs to him, I have a whole sermon, by the way, called Pig Pen Theology, because once you get in a pig pen, you know, sometimes God can get a hold of you. And that's where this guy came to Jesus. You know, he came back to his senses, and he said, you know what, I need to go back to my father. My father's servants live better than I'm living. And he says, I just need to go back, and I need to go back, and when I get back, I need to say, Father, I, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm so sorry, and I, I will, I, all I want to be is a servant for you. Well, he, he takes off to go home, and uh, as, he's, as he's going home, it says these words about the prodigal. Um, uh, it, says, it says that the father literally sees him coming and runs to him, and, and, he, and the son says, Father, I have sinned, and then... The dad just interrupts him all, hugs him and says, we don't need to finish any of those sentences. There's no apologies and vows and commitments you've got to make here. All I want to do is just hug you, you know, and I want to change your clothes. You smell bad. I want to ch- Let's get some new robes on this guy, and we're going to throw a huge party for him. There's this moment, and it says in, in Luke 15, it says, for the father had compassion on him. Of course, it's a picture of God's compassion on us when we're wallowing in our sin we're wandered far away from God and disobeyed God. The Bible says we can come right back to him. He will run to us. He will wrap his arms around us. He will hold us. He will care for us. And he will give us this moment of grace because he has compassion on us. Now, I want you to know compassion is, is, not, uh, compassion is not pity. Some of the actual modern translations use that word in here, and it's a really bad translation of the Greek word. Um, Pity, pity is something you can just do for somebody from a distance. You know, you can pity, when you drive past a person that's homeless on the side of the road, you just pity them sometimes. You go, boy, that's just pitiful. You know, I just, I feel so sorry for you. That's not compassion. And when you see somebody that's in great need, and you don't help them, that's not compassion. It's pity, maybe sorrow, maybe sadness, but it's not compassion. Compassion is a, is something inside you that compels you to have to move and do something. And it's actually really told well in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan who finds a man laying half dead in the ditch. And it it says there's six action verbs that follow this. The Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. And when he did that, that compassion motivated him to act. And I want to say to you, if we have compassion on our lost neighbors, on our friends who are far from God, on our co-workers who are, whose lives are just spinning very much out of control. Um, if we have compassion on them, we have to act on that. He, and look at what he does. It says he, he had compassion on him. He came to him, he bandaged up his wounds, he poured in oil and wine, and he put him on his own beast, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And you know what it says in the next verse. And the next day he told the innkeeper, Anything more this man has that needs to be charged, you put it on my account. So he invested his life. He invested his money. He gave him all kinds of resources, all of his own stuff to help that guy, that broken man. I want to say to you, our neighborhoods, our, your co-workers, your people that are in school with you, they are broken. They are broken down in a ditch, and they have got to have somebody come alongside and say, and I've got enough compassion just to reach out. Now, and I'm going to build a bridge to help you. Some of you young people have a responsibility to help the people around you that are just, their lives are just, they're on a trajectory that just sounds horrible if you play it out to the end. 
They're not going to end up with healthy homes and healthy marriages and and healthy lives. They're going to end up caught up in all kinds of mess unless Jesus can get to their heart. And you're the one that carries the gospel. But to do that, you've got to have compassion. It's it's an action. And when you show compassion to a lost person, it's literally like the heart of God. The Bible says when when Jesus saw the people of Israel before him, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it says this word, had compassion on them that he began to minister to them. See, compassion makes us act. Makes us act. And it is the the very character of God um, when we have compassion. And so I want you to to develop compassion. It's a clear mark that God is in you. When you show compassion to somebody, they know it. Um, Because it's grace. Compassion compassion really looks like grace. They they don't deserve it. A man laying in the ditch uh, didn't deserve to be helped by the Samaritan. He just willingly showed it to him. So it's, it's literally like a mark of God in us. It's like the evidence of God inside you. When you show compassion to a needy person, to a hurting person, to a broken person, um, it will help them see God better in their life. And they will begin to experience God. There was a movie out um, over Christmas called Unbroken. And uh, I read the book. I've been reading the book for weeks now. Big old thick thing. Um, but I read the whole book. It's way better than the movie because it's so much more detailed. Um, but it's about a prisoner of war in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was an Olympic athlete, uh, Louis Zampier. They call him, uh, in the movie, they call him Zamp a lot. But he, he ends up in a prisoner of war camp where he's just tortured, tortured, and tortured, and tortured. The book's 50 times stronger than what you see on the screen. I was very grateful that it wasn't that graphic. Um, just tortured, tortured, tortured. Then eventually there's a guard that comes to his, his little cell one day and, and whispers to him are you, in English, are you a Christian? He goes, and he wasn't. He goes, yes, I'm a Christian. And immediately this guy begins to show compassion to him and he finds ways to hide him from the guy that's torturing him. There's one officer there that just wants to beat this guy's brains out every time he sees him. And, uh, and he just finds ways to skirt around that. And he tries many times to help him now. Ultimately, it didn't, you know, he didn't get a lot of help, but he got some help from him. But he was just a, a guard in a very critical situation, risking his own life to show compassion. He had to do something to help these prisoners. And this guard would sneak food to the prisoners because they weren't giving them enough, nearly enough food in the day. So he'd sneak stuff to them all the time. But compassion is a mark that God's in us. And God was in that, by the way, when, when Louis eventually, at the end of the book, Louis gets saved. And, uh, and he looks back on all that, and he saw the divine people that God placed in his life, the, the people that rescued him, the people that helped him, the people that were there. And he knew it was the hand of God. So people will see the hand of God in you when you show compassion. The third thing I want to challenge you to is to show a measure of faith. Now, this is important because we have to have faith to be able to reach out to people, which is true, but you also have to have faith in that person. Don't you? You have to believe in that person. And uh, I want to tell you, I've worked with a lot, a lot of people in my life. It's, it's been a calling since I was 17 years old to be in the ministry. And I've worked to help a lot of people. And I've been on larger church staffs. And I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of the church or the people around me that, that I was involved with when, when it happened. But I've literally sat in a room where people were evaluating my time commitments. And they, I had to turn in a schedule of who I was with this week and who I visited and who I counseled and who I discipled and all that kind of and I remember sitting with two or three pastors telling me, they were my superiors too, which was challenging, but they were telling me, 
you don't need to spend this much time with this guy. He's just not, you know I mean? He's been in so much trouble ever since he was little. I'm like, yeah, I remember in the nursery when we were just pulling him out of the windows, you know? We were trying to get him to stop tearing. The, he used to get under cribs and tear the bottom stuff out of the cribs. You know, I'm like, I remember that, you know? But he's all grown up 18 and a mess now. He's still tearing up things. It's just not cribs anymore. You know, and, and he's interested in spiritual things. So while I got a window, you know, like, yeah, but he's not going to ever, you know, get, you, get the church or the ministry or your, you know, I'm like, he's here. He's somebody God sent us. And so I never stopped with those guys. I had two or three on that list of, you know, other guys around me going, ah, man, you're wasting your time. I just want to tell you, you've got to have, you got to believe in this verse in Philippians 1. It says this. Paul says in, in Philippians, verse 6, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it's finally finished on the day of Christ. You know, I'm just going to say, and it's not anything for me, Okay, it's all about what God did. Every one of the guys that was on my list of you're not supposed to be and don't spend more time with this guy, every one of them is has a magnificent family now. They serve in their church. Most of them are Sunday school teachers. A couple of them are, one of them's a professor at a Bible college, which would crack me up, by the way. It's, he's like a professor at a Bible college, and he has no business. You knew his past, you'd go, wow, how did he get from here to there? You know. But God finished the work. He, he worked on him all the way through to raise him up and grow him up. And, and you don't give up on people because you don't see it. Let God do that. So when I say you have to have faith, you don't have to have faith in all the circumstances around that person. There's one guy I got out of jail. I, as a college pastor, I, I'm very familiar with Homewood Jail. You know, I just go down there and go, yeah, God here, yeah, he's here. Okay. But hey, good to see you, officer. I knew all the officers by name. They're like, you're going to get him out? Yeah, yeah. I'm doling out a little money. You know, what little money I had? I'm pleased only let it be $75 this time, you know. Yeah, okay, and then I'd put him in the car, and he'd bawl his eyes out because I'd rescued him. You know, his parents weren't going to go get him. They are like, we're done with him. I'm like, yeah, I'll go get him. You know, take him to Waffle House and you know, try to get his head on straight again. But he's, he's ministering now, you know, as, a, as a, a Sunday school teacher with a little, his family is doing great in this little church up north. I'm like, how in the world did God, but it wasn't me. It was a work that God did in, in that person's life. So when you, when you have faith, your faith needs to be that God's going to do the work. Uh, believe in God's redemptive, restorative power. Listen, there's nobody you know outside the bounds of God's love. Now, I'm asking you, how many of you were on the wrong path and God pulled you back to the right path? How many of you? <laughs> yes, I saw them two-handed. Right? So if we're, tra- if we're trekking the wrong way and God can turn us, why wouldn't we do that for people that are around us? Why wouldn't we begin to say to them, we believe in where, what God can do in your life. I tell people all the time in my office, I don't believe in you because of you. You're not impressive. But man, my God is so impressive as what he can do with an individual's life. He will transform you. And there's nobody you know beyond the bounds, beyond the reaches of God's grace and God's redemptive, restorative power. So you've got to have faith. And fourthly, you've got to have love. It really goes with compassion, by the way. You've got to have love. And it's an unconditional, sacrificial love that will offer grace, and, and when, when you're unconditionally loving to somebody, you, you show them grace at every challenge. When they fail, you just show them love. And they, they continue to fail. When they fail five and six and eight and ten times, you just keep loving them back to the right place. And you, you tell them, hey, I believe in you. I believe in God's work in you. And when you do that, you are, you are giving them the ability to overcome their brokenness. 
John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love, Greek words agape, poor church family here, you know exactly that, what that means. Not man's love, but it's a God's love that's unconditional, self-sacrificing. That you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciple. You have love for one another. Now, I want to say to you, as a church body, when you find churches that bite and devour one another, you find churches that are just chewing each other up. I've got several pastor friends, and we get together all the time, and, and there's all this strife that we hear about in other churches, sometimes in there. There's all this strife, and people just working against each other and trying to tear this person down and tear that person down or you know, trying, to, trying to have some sort of power play. And there's all this controversy. And it's just disappointing to hear that because when you live at that level, when you speak of, ugly of other people in your church, you have no credibility on earth to share the gospel and to share love. Um, if you love one another, if you love one another, you carry the credentials of Christ into every conversation if you'll do it with agape. You carry Christ, that's his love. And he says, by this will all men know that you, that, I, that you are my disciples if you have my love, agape, and you carry that into the conversation, now you've got some credentials. And I'm telling you, it goes a long ways. It goes a long ways. Uh, another quick story. One of the college students in our ministry uh, ran into a, a lady that was a young girl, a college-age girl, um, that was um, living with an older man, uh, really just for the favors she could do for him. He, he was, she was taking care of the house, but he had nothing else. Um, in his life, and so he was really taking huge advantage of this girl, and she was living in a horrible condition. And so we began to, and, and he was giving her drugs and all kinds of stuff, so we began to try to rescue her from that situation. Her heart really went out to her, and uh, she, was, she was really struggling with some drug addiction and, and alcohol and all kinds of stuff. And so we eventually got some of the girls in our college ministry said, hey, we've got an extra room in our apartment um, for the next three months. It's open, and we're just going to let her come in. Well, that's kind of a risky thing. Because um, her life's kind of, you know, a mess, and uh, and it did. It turned into a big, messy restoration process, and uh, we had to have a lot of long talks with her. And two o'clock in the morning, I'm on the phone with the three of them. They're all having arguments in the apartment about what you can do and what you can't have this, and you shouldn't be out doing that. And you got to stay here at night and all that kind of stuff. She wasn't used to all that, so we got all that straight. And eventually, um, bless her heart, she just she had a relapse and she just ran away. And uh, they found her in downtown Birmingham. A police officer found her. Uh, unconscious by a dumpster, took her to the local hospital there at downtown UAB, and uh, and in the emergency room they called my my cell phone and uh, she said they said you're the only person she says she knows. Okay, you know so I go down stay in the emergency room for a little while and get to you know know what's happened and she's been all beat up she's gotten on with the wrong people downtown and gotten all beat up and so I go in there and we start having these conversations you know about getting you on the right path and. Helping you. Now, I'm telling you, she is just overwhelmed that I would come down there because she's kind of in trouble with the law. She's been bad to them. She's in a mess, you know, and she's run away from that apartment. You know, so then we got to find another place for her and we got to figure all that out. And I'm saying, we'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. Just continual love, grace, and compassion, unconditional love. And it, it really was settling on her heart, but it hadn't settled yet. And uh, so about two months later, we got another place, got a family to take her in. And she bugged out one night, literally took all her stuff out the door in a bag late at night, locked the door behind her, and started walking down the street, got a ride, and uh, went to all the way up to Gadsden. And I get a call from the emergency room in Gadsden uh, where she's been 
arrested by the sheriffs who she attacked, and you know she's all beat up, and they're all beat up, and and uh, I'm in, and uh, you know she's got my number again, so I pick up a couple of college students uh, middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning. I pick up a couple of college students, and say, hey, you're going with me? We can go up there and see if we can sort her life out. You know, when we get up there, we're just trying to help. Them. We tell them who we are, this church, and what we're doing, and uh, you know. The interesting thing is, at that point, she was so hurt and angry, she turned on us. And she started making all kinds of accusations about me. Um, she started putting me in the category of what the guy that originally had her said. And, I mean, it was I was standing there going, oh, Lord, you know, there's sheriffs on both sides of me, you know, and she's making all these accusations that could have got me put in jail just like that. And I'm just standing there saying, you know, it was all just grace. That's the only reason I drove up here. <laughs> just love. We just want her better, you know. And uh, about that time, the two officers looked at her, and then looked at me. And they could tell I was nervous, overwhelmed by a little bit of this. And, uh, and they said, could you, could you, Pastor Givens, would you just step out of the room for just a minute? Sure. And there's a lady officer and a male, man officer, uh, sheriff's department. And they, they had this, in, I stood right there by the door, they had this insanely strong talk with her. Who else would have driven, you know, two hours to you in the middle of the night just to help you? There's no way what you're saying is accurate. And eventually... They, having talked to her, she started breaking down and crying. And that was a turning point for her life. But it was really because we just kept after. We just kept showing love, love, love. And she broke down and just sobbed uh, in that room. And then they called us back in, and the girls that were out in the waiting room came in. And, and we all had this big, you know, hug and hold, and we're going to fix this. And, you know, she, she's got her life. She works at a mall in Birmingham now, and eventually every so often sends me a little note say, you know, I can't believe all you, you know, went through. But you just have to stay with people. Sometimes it's not that complicated, by the way. It doesn't have to be all that complicated. It's just a matter of showing consistent love to your neighbor that lives across the street from you. Consistent love to the person in your office. But you've got to have that unconditional love so you carry those credentials. And then the fifth one I want you to know is you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, there's a great story where the Apostle Peter... Um, and uh, it, it's really the key to all the disciples' lives. When you follow them through the New Testament, um, there's a key to their life um, is that they, could, they would just listen for the Spirit's promptings and listen. Whatever the Spirit said do, they just went, yes. They didn't go, are you sure? This is what, this is what Stan says a lot. I don't know if that's such a good idea, God. Are you thinking with me? <laughs> I'm trying to talk God out of what the Holy Spirit's telling me. The 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 disciples and the apostles in the New Testament, they didn't have any of that. They were just straight out um, ministering to people. Um, but Peter and John, they're about to go into the temple, and there's a man at the temple gate begging for alms like he always had. Um, and uh, Peter and John fixed their gaze upon him and said, and he asked them for an offering, for some help. And uh, Peter and John fixed their gaze, and they said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold. What I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he literally gives him you know, a healing at that moment. Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately uh, raised him to his feet, and his ankles were strengthened. And he leapt, and he stood upright, and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. What happened in that moment, listen, a beggar stopped a, a really up-and-coming, well-known apostle. You know, by now, Peter's preached twice and had 10,000 people come to Christ. 
You know, so he's well known as a guy in the community. And when he walks by, you know, this guy's like, hey, that guy, he's, he's somebody. I mean, he's got this entourage. He's somebody. And Peter, Peter, instead of going, I don't have time for you, you know, hey, you know, dude, I just don't have any. He could have just simply said, I don't have any money. I don't have any money. But he knew spiritually this interactive moment was a time for him to do something. And so he took the opportunity to hear the Spirit of God and then pray for this man who was healed, you know, and then who becomes someone who walks in the temple praising God. So we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I want to just tell you a little personal note. I am not a cold contact person. Everybody here that knows me well knows I'm not real good in conversation. And cold contact, like door-to-door, you know, or just meeting somebody in a, in a room of people I don't know, I'm the guy standing against the wall waiting on somebody to say hey to me. That's me. I'm not the, you know, bold, right up in the middle of everything kind of guy like, you know, Brandon or Justin or Larry. You know, I don't just charge in and go blah, 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 like they do, okay? That's not me. I'm very, very withdrawn, sort of shy, and, and set back in that. Um, so I'm not a cold contact person, but here's what I've understood about that. And I know, by the way, a bunch of you in our church are like that. You don't just, you know, charge up to people and, you know, start beating them over the head with the King James Bible telling them about Jesus. I get that. But here's what I've learned. As a shyer person that doesn't start conversations, when I'm standing at Circle K or Walmart or Winn-Dixie, when I'm standing anywhere and a stranger starts talking to me, you know what I know is happening? You know, that something weird's happening, that's what I know. You know what I know is happening? God is making me have a conversation. He's literally going, hey, you're not going to do this, so I'm going to make that guy ask you first, you know? Where, you know, where'd you get that truck or what, you, whatever, you know, huh? Oh, you got a good sports lady, you know, nice truck, man, you know, and you go, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, where'd you get your truck? You know, you got you to gotta figure out a way, but I've learned, man, I've just learned to get ultra-sensitive. When I'm riding in the elevators at, at, uh, at the hospital, you know, I just stand there, and I'm, I'm not going to say anything to a stranger in the elevator. I'm just not, you know? I mean, unless, you know, they smell bad or, I don't know, you know, there could be a circumstance where I'd have to, but I'm just not normally going to speak. But then all of a sudden, when they say something to me, you know, I'm like, okay, well, how, how come you're here? Oh, your mother's, or your grandma, your aunt, you know? Um, well, how can I pray for that? And immediately I'm opening a, a, an opportunity to talk with them, right? But you got, I've got to listen for those, and I've got to be sensitive to those. It's divine appointments, and I just start listening for that. Bill Hobbles calls it the whisper of God. And God whispers a lot to me, and I just ignore them. And I'm telling you, I'm done with that. 2015, I'm going to listen a lot more to those things. Now, I'm going to give you a conclusion to this whole deal that's a complete twist of everything I just said, Okay? Um, because, because what I've found out is most of you make excuses. Most of you make excuses. When you look at your spiritual life, you go, you know what, I, I don't have a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, so I can't really witness. You know, I, I just don't. I don't even know how to get one of those, so I can't be a witness. And, and then you say, well, you know, I, I, you know, my love factor, <laughs> you know, that agape love so hard, I'm still trying to figure out just, just you know, brotherly love. And I'm working towards agape love, so I'm not a real loving person. So that, that kind of disqualifies me from being a good witness. You know, my faith in God and others is just oft, often really weak. So that disqualifies me from being a good witness. And then, you know, as far as compassion and integrity, you know, I'm just not there. I mean, I struggle and sin and fall and fail all the time. And, 
So those are my five good excuses why I shouldn't witness. Right there. I don't have any compassion. Pastor said I should. I don't have any integrity. Pastor and God said I should. Not sensitive. Not loving. Not really strong in my faith. So I don't have to witness. Right? Wrong. Sorry. You're just dead wrong there. I'm going to just blast you with that. Um, because I'm so tired of those excuses being there. And I want you to just look in John chapter 4 as we close. John chapter 4, I've taught this before to you, so it's just a good reminder. There's a lady in John 4 that is an arrogant, bigoted, rude, crude, immoral woman. Nothing about the Samaritan woman that comes to the well to meet Jesus in John chapter 4, nothing about her is soft and sweet and sensitive and faithful and compassionate and loving. From the very beginning conversation with Jesus, she's confrontational. All he asked her was, could you give me a drink of water? And she could have went, loving, compassionate person. Yes, you know our God. Here, here's some water. You know our God. That's not what she says. In John chapter 4, she goes, how is it that you, being a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan, there's a huge line between those two people, that group, she's just a racial racial line right there. How is it you being a Jew would ask me, a Samaritan, for water? You're a man and I'm a woman, by the way. How's that happen? I don't know who you think you are, buddy. (laughs) Kind of deal, right? The whole conversation goes that way. Every time Jesus says something, if only you knew who I was, you know, you would ask me, I'd give you living water. Well, I don't know who you think you are, but, you know, our forefathers, they worshipped in this area right here. Our Samaritans, ooh, we're somebody... Our cow, Jacob's cows, used to drink from this very well. I'm just like really impressed by that. I mean, like, wow, really? Jacob's cows? Huh, wonder who made those. Wonder who made the well. I don't know. Maybe me. You know? You know what I'm saying? Everything she says through the whole conversation is confrontational, combative, argumentative, and arrogant. And Jesus just keeps on asking her that same question. I taught you this years and months ago. Jesus just keeps going, but aren't you thirsty? When you want something to sat, your soul is just dying in there. I mean, you're just so combative with me. And eventually he says, hey, why don't you go get your husband and we'll talk about this. Like, oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. The one you're living with is not your husband. You've got five others. So then there's this whole immoral deal, right? So you're looking at a woman with no credentials in the Christian world as a Christian Christ follower, zero credentials. Somewhere in the conversation, she understands Jesus is the one who looked to her very soul and offered her living water, and she accepts that, and when she does, she goes running back to town, and when she gets into town, John chapter 4, if you follow it with me, verse 39, uh, and from the city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. She told me all things I have done. Many believed because of the words that the woman said. Well, she had no credentials. She wasn't a loving woman. She was an arrogant, bad person. But she went back, and she did what happens in John chapter 9. There's a story in John chapter 9 where a blind man's healed, and the Pharisees go, that couldn't be God. And he goes, sure it is. You know, once I was blind, now I can see. You know how simple your testimony can be to people? And by the way, you don't have to 
you know, revival in Samaria. It says the whole town came to Christ. All of Samaria followed Christ because of an adulterous, sinful, bigoted, arrogant woman. Went running back and said, let me tell you what just happened to me. Right? So I'm saying, you, you should work on love, unconditional love. You should work on sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. You should work on your faith. You really should. Biblically, you should hang out with a bunch of people. Our church is a great place to do that. You should hang out with a bunch of people that are working on all these areas, integrity and compassion. But you don't have to have any of that. You just have to have the, the moment that you met Christ. I connected with God and Christ, and now I can tell somebody else about that. That's all you ha- really have to have. There are two things. I'd love for you to write this at the end of your notes here. There are two things you should almost that should be almost immediate and spontaneous for a person who's genuinely influenced and connected with Jesus. The two things are what he, what he tells people all the time when he encountered them on earth. He looked at the adulterous woman in John 8 and he said, go and sin no more. You should work on getting that stuff taken care of. Go and sin no more. And the other thing he tells everybody, go and tell. Go tell the gospel. Go tell them what I did for you. Even, even one guy, he says, I don't want you to go tell everybody. I want you to go tell the priest. Don't tell everybody because I'm trying to keep my identity a secret for another year or so here. But I, I do want you, now that I've healed you, Go tell the priest what's happened to you. Um, so he'll connect with you. See, we're supposed to go and sin no more and go and tell. That's the two things that are supposed to happen when Jesus and you really get connected and when you really have a relationship with Jesus. But in order to do that, you have to have a real relationship with Jesus. So my challenge to you today is to, is to modify your life so that you can, you can have that encounter. Now, we're trying to refocus our church on what matters most. Put the gospel first. Eternity matters. So I'd like to, I'm going to give you a, show you a little video here in a second, but before we do that, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads and